Uh, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. And uh, hear God's word to you. These are the words of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you for your word and how your word is light. That it both exposes who we truly are. It shows us who we are. And yet it is filled with warmth and truth and hope and clarity. And so we pray that uh, you would shine light through your word on us as individuals and as a church and that you would lead us to trust in who you are and, and also to put your words into practice in our lives. And so we pray that you'd send your spirit now to guide each one of us and take these words that I speak and apply them into each one of the lives present here. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So our topic this morning is church discipline, which may not be the most exciting topic for some of you to, uh, to hear about, but um, before we jump into talking about church discipline, let me just say a couple of things about it, because I think for most people, when they hear that phrase, if, if you grew up in the church, church discipline, what that means to you is a formal action that a church takes to remove someone from the community, like excommunication or something like that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as this passage goes along. But church discipline is actually something that is far more broad than that. Because discipline is something that God is constantly doing in our lives, constantly bringing into our lives. So that, you know, if you come to church and you're convicted in a sermon, that's church discipline. Or, you know, if someone challenges you, you know, they, they you know, bring something to light in your life and they say, hey, you know, you should really be thinking about that. You know, someone else in the church, that's church discipline. Or if you even see someone else living in a way that's faithful to the Lord that you're not doing, that's church discipline. Or you're reading, your script, reading the scriptures and God convicts you through the scriptures. Or, you know, or even a hardship comes into your life and it reveals to you some you know, maybe sins that are happening in your life in places where you need to turn to the Lord. All of these areas are ways that God is disciplining us as, as children, the ways that he is teaching us. And so discipline is not this rare kind of formal thing that the church does every once in a while. It is something that God is constantly doing in our lives. And he calls us to have a spirit to receive that discipline and trust him in it. And actually, the book of Hebrews says that those that the Lord loves 
He disciplines. It is a sign of God's love and commitment to you that he brings his discipline into your life. And so um, we're going to think about this topic because it's such an important part of our spiritual lives this morning. And in particular, as we look at just this little section of these words from our Lord Jesus, we will get five truths about church discipline that there's just so much in these few verses. I mean, Jesus' words are just so pregnant with wisdom and meaning and application to our lives. So we're going to look at five things together, and I've got a lot to say on it, so we're going to, uh, we're going to get, get cracking. So the first thing is this. Church discipline assumes that we are all sinners. The reason church discipline is in the Bible and Jesus talks about it is because of the assumption that what we are as a gathering of people is that we're all sinners. And, you know, you see that this passage opens in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, this is, this is a really important verse because in this chapter, Jesus, in chapters 18 and 19, Jesus is laying out a lot of his vision for the church and the community that he's establishing. And, you know, for many of us, when we think about coming into the church and becoming a Christian, and we, we have very romantic ideas about what church life is going to be like. You know, so we're going to be happy, and there's joy, and we love the Lord, and God's present there, and everyone's serving each other, and it's different than the world. And, you know, actually, in many ways, that's true. Uh, in my experience, I've experienced far more love in the church than I have in the world. As someone who came into the church, didn't grow up in the church, and just came in uh, when I was a teenager. And yet, in the midst of that community that Jesus is setting up, he gives a protocol both for confronting sin and also for actually for excommunication. Which, that word excommunication, you know, that someone would be disfellowship from a community, I've always heard that as something, isn't that something that cults do, is excommunicate people? Do Christians do that? And, you know, it was interesting, I, there was a guy that I met down at Woods, this is several years ago, down at Woods, down on Boulevard, and we met pretty much every week for coffee, and he was, he was not a Christian, he was actually a professor up at Western, and he was a, called himself a postmodern educator. And I thought something like excommunication would be something that he would find very offensive that a church would ever do that. And somehow we got on the topic and he said, you know, that's something that makes perfect sense to me. You know, in order to have a community, you need to have something in common that binds you together. And if someone in the community rejects that thing that you have in common, they reject Jesus, they reject Jesus' authority, and, you know, are blatantly turning away from him, then it makes sense that they can't be a part of the community anymore. That makes perfect sense. That's the thing that's binding you together. And it really, he actually helped, this guy's not a Christian, helped me open my eyes to be like, oh, this is, of course, a natural thing. And what that tells us is that Jesus is not sentimental about our life together. He knows that the people that he's drawing together are selfish, defensive, envious, easily embittered. All those things are, about, are true about all of us to varying degrees. And, you know, it's interesting. If you actually become a member of our church, we have these membership vows that you take. They're actually baptismal vows as well. If you've ever been here for when we're receiving members, you might have been kind of stunned by the first membership vow. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy. 
That's the first vow. That's the first, you know, I want to be a part of this. Is, that's the first thing that we acknowledge is that our lives should be displeasing to God. And, sh- you know, we should go to hell. We deserve, we're that bad that we deserve to go to hell. But Jesus bore hell for us on the cross so that God brings us into his family. And so the first thing that we assume as we come into this community is that we are all sinners. Which means then, for all sinners, it should be our assumption that at some point in our life together, someone's going to have to call me out on something, right? I'm going to do something to wrong someone. I'm going to sin in some way, and someone's going to have to tell me about it. I should just be prepared for that. And I know as the pastor of this church, that's happened to me numerous times over the last six years of this, uh, this church's life. And it's important for us to ask, if someone came and confronted us about sin in our lives, how do we respond to it? Look at what Jesus says, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If someone challenged us, would we be one of the ones who would listen? Would we have the humility and the softness of heart, the teachability for someone to challenge us on our sin? Would we receive that? Or would the walls come up? Would the defenses come up? Would you say, how dare you speak in my life? How dare you say, you have no right to talk about my life. I'll make my own decisions. Thank you very much. Which would it be? Because I'll just tell you, love, you know, if you say that no one can say anything into your life and they, no one can challenge you, you don't know what love is. Love means people are all up in your business. And if we love one another, then we're going to be up in each other's business. Of course, that's, that's what love is. Listen, listen to this Psalm 141. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses from the Psalms. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. A righteous man wants to strike me, I'll receive it. It's going to correct me. I'm open. And actually, the book of Proverbs, you read through the book of Proverbs, and it says almost the hallmark of what it means to be a wise person is that when someone says some, a rebuke to you, you receive it. And it's the fool who disregards any kind of correction or any kind of rebuke. That, that's the foolish person who can't, can't handle that. And the reason for this, the reason why as a community we can have a teachable spirit and, and say, you know what, I just know someone's going to have to challenge me at some point, is because of who we are in Christ. Like the gospel says that all of my sins, whatever I, sins I've ever done in the past, and every sin that I will ever do in the future have been forgiven. They're washed by Jesus. I'm clean and accepted by God. And when I begin to internalize that sense of identity, this is who I am. I'm a forgiven sinner. Then you can challenge me, and it doesn't totally derail me emotionally, because who I am in Christ, I'm secure. And so I can hear a rebuke. I can receive it and, and say, you know what, this is for my good. God has brought this into my life for my good. And um, I'll just tell you, you know, if someone does correct you about a sin, they probably are not going to do it perfectly. You know, because if someone's calling you out on something, they're probably frustrated with you. So it's going to be kind of a mixture of like, okay, I'm trying to correct this person and I'm, ah, what they did really, you know, rubbed me the wrong way. And so you, as you're receiving it, you have a question where you can say, well, they don't understand what they're talking about or they came down on me too hard or they did. We can find a million reasons to, to brush them off. 
But a teachable spirit is going to hear whatever it is because what we're going to realize is that the discipline is not coming from that person. The discipline is coming from the Lord. And when we receive it from the Lord as instead of from that person, we can overlook the flaws in how they told it to us and say, what is God's spirit trying to tell me in this? And have an open heart. And, uh, you know, I should say one other side about this verse. You know, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Which tells us that how we, you know, when you see other people's sins, the only person you're supposed to talk to about that is that person. And this is a guard against gossip in the church and talking about, oh, this person did this, this person did this. And that kind of gossip, when that gets going in a church community where we don't address the person in their own sin, is just cancerous. It just rips apart church communities. And so the first thing that we, uh, we learned this past about church discipline is it's there because Jesus assumes that we are all sinners. Okay, We're not a community of happy, loving people coming together who are going to have a happy, loving community. That's a part of it. But there's another part as well. And so I assume that someone is going to call me out at some point. But as, as you all know, you know, when someone confronts you about a sin, how they say it means a lot, right? And this is the second thing that we learn about church discipline is that church discipline is about restoring relationships. That's why it's there. And I know, you know, probably for some of you, you know, as you think of the two people in this, this little, you know, scene that Jesus is painting, and if you, you know, some of you, it would actually be a lot easier to receive a rebuke than to actually give one to someone else. You know, the thought of someone else wronged me and I'm going to go confront them about it is so horrifying. You say, you know, I'd rather leave the church. I'd rather never, you know, avoid that person. I'm going to go to a different service from now on so I don't have to see them. And uh, because that's actually the thing that's so, so frightening. And, I, you know, I should say that some of you, you may have people in this room now that you know you need to talk to about something. And Jesus is challenging you in this passage to have that conversation, whatever that hard conversation is. But it's absolutely crucial the spirit that you bring into that conversation. What spirit are you entering into that conversation with? Um, Because addressing sin and brokenness in relationships is not about venting. It's not about giving a person a piece of your mind. I'm going to tell this person what they did me wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to lambast them. No. Verse 15, look at what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. The goal of the conversation is to gain the brother. It's that I want you. Why am I having this conversation? It's because I want you. And, you know, many of us, we think that when we go confront someone about something, this gives us license to just say things like, you are the most conceited person I've ever met in my life. You know, and all of a sudden, and we think, you know, oh, I'm just being honest. I'm sorry, I'm just being honest with you, you know. And, And we think by being honest, that gives us permission to tear people down. But the reality is that honesty without love is always dishonesty. Honesty without love is always dishonesty because if there's no love, you will always, um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Magnify the sin that you're addressing. You will always make it bigger. And the, the things that, the other parts of the good side of the person, you'll ignore those things. And you'll magnify the bad side of them. And so love 
is essential that we go into those relationships and my goal is I want to gain my brother. I want to restore the relationship. That's why I'm entering into this conversation. And we should be explicit about that. And you know, I, I love that uh, Jesus uses the language of brothers and sisters and family. He says, this is a family. You know, and family, those are the people you're most candid with, right? And yet there needs to be love there to hold it together to, and to make the family a, a place that you want to be. And saying that I care more about this relationship than my safety and my comfort. Okay? Now, this is important because for many people, when they hear about church discipline, what that means to them is, yeah, this is what churches do. Churches want power. And churches want to get power over people's lives. And they, you know, pastors and priests and everyone, you know, they, church leaders, religious leaders get people in their congregations and they want control over them. And the way they get control is through fear, through church discipline. And, you know, I'll say that that's possible. Churches could do that. That is not what Jesus is laying out here, though. He says the motivation for confronting sin is always love. And you can see that reconciliation and love are, are the motivators that he's talking about. Look at verse 21. And Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. And what Jesus is saying here is that this whole experience of someone wrongs me, someone sins, and I go talk to them about it, and they receive it and they humbly repent, and then I forgive them, this whole exchange is not something that maybe happens a couple times in your Christian life. Jesus says this is constantly happening in the church. And if the church is going to be a different community than the world, it's constantly happening because people wrong each other all the time. It's a whole part of our lifestyle and life together. It's happening frequently. And if you're going to go and talk to someone about their sin, you know this is, you're getting into, you know, a tender part of their life. There's the possibility that walls are going to come up, defenses are going to come up. And so it's imperative that we are prayerfully going into those conversations and this is the way Paul says it, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So he says it should be the spirit of gentleness. You should be watching your own life. You know, what sin are you bringing into this conversation? And so you should be slow to point out other people's sins. And, you know, by the way, you know, the first thing that we do as a church, when people sin against us or wrong us, the first response is, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. There's all kinds of little wrongs that we do to one another, we just overlook them. Because that, God overlooks tons of things with us. He doesn't point out all of our sins to us, right? He's patient with us, so we do that with one another. When there are things that it comes time to point things out, and you will genuinely know, generally know it, the Spirit will make that clear to you. We come with a spirit of gentleness. And, you know, some of you will know what Jesus says about taking the speck out of someone's eye in the Sermon on the Mount. You know that? What does he say you do first? You take the log out of your own eye so that you're able to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So there's this constant evaluating myself in the process of confronting someone else. And I just think that, you know, there's a helpful tip in that, that, you know, some of you, if you think of 
man, I need to have a conversation with someone. Someone's wronged me, and I'm avoiding them. I'm not, re- I'm not correcting this relationship. How do I start that conversation? Let me give you a few thoughts on that. I think saying something like this, I feel unsettled. You know, let's say someone's in a sin. I feel unsettled about this decision that you're making in your life. And I care about you and I want to talk about it. I feel unsettled about a decision you're making. Or something like this. I find myself reacting to something you did. Can we talk about it? You, know, you said that thing and I've, I find myself, I'm thinking a lot about it. It's unsettling me. I really want to talk about it. What am I doing there? Well, first of all, I'm saying to the person, I'm not here to attack you. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I care about you and I care about this relationship. And so I'm saying this is something in me. I'm having a reaction to something you're doing. And, but second, it also acknowledges that the reason I'm unsettled might be a problem with me. It may not be you. It may be that I'm extra sensitive about this matter and you actually didn't really do anything wrong or, you know, or maybe I just misheard you and misunderstood you and that could be corrected. It also is a conversation beginner. Right? It starts the conversation and say, let's talk about this and it invites the person into relationship, and it says that what I want is deeper relationship with you. And some of you know that, that you've, you've had a conflict with someone that you've been avoiding, and then you go and you talk to them about it, and you work through it, and then all of a sudden, your, your relationship has gone from something kind of superficial to something really deep, where you've actually worked through something together. That's what Jesus intends for his community. Okay, And so church discipline is about restoring relationships. That's Jesus' whole goal in it. It's about gaining the brother, right? Okay? And so it's a beautiful thing. But, you know, there's also another purpose to church discipline. And this is the third thing, is that church discipline maintains the purity of the church and God's honor. There is a purity of God's church that needs to be maintained, God's honor. If God is being disgraced in the church, then the church needs to address that. And you see this in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what Jesus is quoting here is in the Old Testament, the law that was given to Israel. uh, In the legal code, there was this... um, uh, requirement that when any charges were brought against someone, there needed to be two or three witnesses. And he's now applying that into the church and how the, the church handles, thing, handles things. And what Jesus is saying is that there needs to be a persistence in dealing with blatant, willful sin against God. There needs to be a persistence that, you know, this isn't, he's not just saying like, hey, hey, here's a few things to think about. Here's a little feedback for you. You know, take it or leave it. You know, you're in this serious sin, but, you know, if it don't apply, let it fly. We're not saying that. He's saying, actually, you need to be persistent with it. They don't hear it the first time. You bring two, two or three people to address the sin. And, um, and so the question is, you know, what would be blatant, willful, unrepentant sin in someone's life? Well, the most famous example of this comes in 1 Corinthians 5. And in, in the Corinthian church, they had a man in their church who was sleeping with his stepmother. And they were like, you know, we're a grace, grace church. We forgive sins. And, you know, this guy's sleeping with his stepmother. And, but, you know, hey, we tolerate it. We're forgiving. And, and you know, Paul writes in this letter, and he's like, you got a what going on in your church? Like, you know, the non-Christians 
think that's crazy and weird. And then you're doing it in your church and you're not putting a stop to that? Like, you cannot tolerate that. You need to tell this guy, you, you can't be a Christian to do that. And so either stop right now or you cannot be a part of our community any longer. And if they say, no, I want to keep, I want to keep going, going with this, Paul says you need to remove them from the fellowship. And there are sins that can be blatant like that. You know, there are some sins where it's like there's an internal wrestle going on, you know, maybe struggling with lust or anger, where it's like, I hate that I, I keep repeating this sin and my flesh and the spirit are warring with one another. That kind of thing, there's just tons of grace for. God knows we're going to be struggling with those things our whole life. And we come in and we're forgiven and we're forgiven and we're forgiven. There's some things, though, where we, you know, make a line in the sand. You know, and I'll give you an example. Let's say, I, I think something like this. If you say, you know, I'm going to go live with my girlfriend. The Bible says you shouldn't do that. This is not I'm struggling with lust. This is I'm making a willful decision against what the Bible says to do then the church has to say, you can't do that. We'll be with you in the struggle, but if you're blatantly disregarding God's authority, that's not what we're about as a church. And now you might ask, well, what are you saying? Church is going to make sure everyone's perfect. You know, we're going to search out everyone's sins and make sure there aren't any sins. Of course, I know that we're, we're all sinners. It's blatant, unrepentant sin. And what that means is, you know, if someone's in our church and they want to run off with their secretary and leave their wife and children, we're not going to say, well, you know, follow your heart. Whatever you want to do. If that's what your heart's telling you to do, what can we say? No, we're not going to say that. We're going to say, no, you can't be a Christian and do that, and you better stop, or you're not a Christian anymore. And that's, that's the answer. And as a church, we have to have the courage to do that, to say that there is a point where someone is in willful disobedience to the Lord. And this principle of excommunication. It's in Jesus' teaching. Look at this, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is to say you should treat them as an outsider. Jesus is talking about someone being removed from the community of his disciples. You know, it's so interesting. How does Jesus' choice of words there is fascinating. He, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And you read through the Gospels, and what do you know about Gentiles and tax collectors? They're people that Jesus has been inviting into his kingdom. And so he's been saying to them, repent of your sin, and I want to welcome you back. And that even in that little line, there's this principle of gaining the brother. Jesus' motivation is, I want to gain the brother. And I'm going to, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to be hard on people so that they turn from self-destructive behavior and that they come back in and be a part of our community is because we love them and we want to gain the brother. And so, of course, this leads to the question, how does something like that happen in the church? Okay, you know, a formal action like that where someone is removed from the community. And this is the, the fourth thing that we learn from this passage is that church discipline is under the authority of the elders of the church. Church discipline is under the authority of the elders. And Jesus says this in verse 17. We just read this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, what does that mean? Someone's in a sin, and you're supposed to tell it to the church. 
how do you do that? Does that mean on Sunday morning you guys come and you say, hey, Nate, hold on a sec. I got a guy who's got a sin. I got to point out. We got to deal with it. No, what, what that's referring to, how we understand the church is the elders of the church. And if you actually if, turn to page three in your bulletin, I put a little passage from Deuteronomy chapter one. And the whole structure of elders in the church is something that wasn't invented in the New Testament. That was, that was uh, in place throughout the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament. And I want to read to you this passage where it describes what elders do. Look at it. Uh, Deuteronomy 1.13. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. Now, first of all, you notice that the congregation chooses people that they think are wise, and they say, and then Moses appoints them. This is Moses speaking. And, and you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. We need spiritual authority in our lives. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Cases between, when brothers sin against each other. And judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with them. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. This is actually describing exactly what we've done as a church. We have uh, uh, four ruling elders right now, and then I'm also a teaching elder in in our church. We have two other men that are uh, in training to be elders in our church, where we as a church choose people to say, we we need spiritual authority in our lives. And the, the decisions that they make as they help keep peace in the church is backed by God's authority. Look at what, look at, this is precisely what Jesus says. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they will ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, most of us, if you've heard that verse before, you think of like that that's a prayer group of people getting together, but it's actually, this is describing two or three elders who are getting together and they're making a decision about a conflict that's happening in the church. And this is where, actually, just one other thing about our church. Um, as a Presbyterian church, we have what's called a plurality of elders. There's, not one, there's never one elder who has authority over the whole congregation. There's always more than one. It's because of this passage that there must be two or three who are making decisions. And when there are two or three that come together, Jesus' decision is with them. His authority backs what they are doing. And the reason for this is because Jesus is a realist. He knows that there's going to be conflict. He knows that we're going to hurt one another. He knows that we need some process and structure in place to, to keep the church together and to keep things peaceful. So that's a question for us. Is that spiritual authority a part of your life? Do you think of your Christian life as just something about you as an individual with Jesus? Me and Jesus are on a ride together. Or is this, I'm a part of a community that God has placed me in where I need spiritual authority over me? And, um, you know, I know that for some people, when they hear something like this about elders and resolving disputes and conflicts and authority. 
And it all sounds so formal, so institutional. And therefore, it sounds very inauthentic, right? We think that, that formality and institutions are, are not authentic. There's, you know, we're not being ourselves there. And, but one of the things you have to think about is what happens when you have an informal community? What happens when you just have a group of people who get together and say, hey, we all like this thing. Let's form a community around this and let's get, you know, get together and we're going to be happy and we're going to love each other. That works until someone offends you in the group. And then someone offends you and then what do you do? You leave the community. <laughs> you leave. There's no structure in place. I'm going to go find another community. And what it turns out is that informal communities, we think of them as so authentic, but we leave them so easily. And so they're actually, or we think of them as so authentic, but they're actually inauthentic because they allow me to hide. They allow me to not resolve conflicts. They allow me to not walk into hard conversations. And so it's very, there's a superficiality to them. They are shallow. And you must have in any family, in any church, in any community, some level of structure. It, mu it must be softened by love and joy and peace in the gospel, but there must be structure in place that holds it together and, and maintains peace. And Jesus is honest about this. He knows that we need it in our lives. Okay, so there's so much here about church discipline. You have church discipline, it, first of all, it assumes that we're all sinners, that we know that we're going to need to be disciplined and corrected at points in this process. But the goal is about restoring relationships and about holding us together and about honoring God, that God is honored in our community. And so he puts spiritual oversight of elders in place to care for us so that we can grow. But there's one last thing uh, from this passage that I want to highlight is that church discipline will force you to pray. Like nothing else, church discipline, conflict, will force you to pray. And you'll notice that when Jesus pictures the elders gathered together and they're making decisions about what's happening in the church or resolving conflicts, he pictures them as praying. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And the reason for this is, you know, for any of you who've really been wronged or had problems in the church where you needed to go have a conversation with someone, and it's, it scares you to death. It scares me to death to have this conversation. We don't, that's why we run away from them. And like nothing else, though, when you are resolved, I need to go resolve this. I'm going to go have that conversation. It will put you on your knees. And you'll say, God, I want a happy ending to this. I, I need to speak the truth and I also need to love this person. I don't know how to do those things at the same time. I don't even know what words to use. I need your spirit to supernaturally just put the right words in my mouth. And the thing is, Jesus promises us that God will give us those words. This is, this is what he says in Luke, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And that's an amazing thing. When you've been in conflict with someone, someone has sinned against you, and the Spirit guides that conversation into reconciliation, you believe that God is alive. God is different than the world. And the, the relationships that just fall apart in the world, it doesn't have to be true here. And so we have to ask the question, why, are, why would we be committed to this hard work? 
because humanity was in conflict against God. We were in rebellion against God. And did God say, you know what? I'm going to find a new community. Scrap these people. I'm going to go start a new world, new humanity. No, he didn't. He sent Jesus into the world to come face us, to speak the truth to us, but also to love us and to pursue reconciliation with us because he said, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want community with you. And now since God has done that, has pursued us, this is going to be a mark of our life together. And so we need to pray that the Spirit would give us wisdom to actually put these words into practice. Let's pray together. Our Lord, you know how challenging these words are for us as a community, and yet how vital if we are going to display your glory here in Bellingham and in Whatcom County. I pray for those who are here that you have been disciplining and have been resistant to your discipline. I pray for your spirit to give them a soft heart to receive what you are teaching, to trust that it is a sign of your love that you discipline us. I pray for those who are here who have conflicts that need to be addressed. And um, I pray that you would give them courage and gentleness and wisdom to walk into those difficult conversations. Would you make us a people where repentance, humility, forgiveness, correction, all these things happen so that we might, that Christ might be formed in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.